content related. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And uh, uh, thank you for joining us again. We're, we're trying this out uh, for the first time, recording things separately. Uh, last couple episodes, we were in the same room at the vendor hall of the IAI conference. Uh, tonight, I'm in Arizona. And I'm here in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, and uh, we're going to, uh, to try now recording uh, via Skype. So we'll see how it goes, uh, this method. But it looks like we're going to start off the show talking about some uh, recent news stories that have been out related to latent prints. Right, yep. A couple of interesting case decisions have come out. And and just for some uh, clarification, too, um, we should probably let the listeners know that this isn't just about latent prints, that we also have people in 10 prints that are, have, I guess have been interested in listening to the show. So we should probably change that to all things related to fingerprints and forensic science in general. You're right. Uh, you know, it's a it's a work in progress. We'll we'll kind of adjust the show uh, sure. as we go until we kind of hit on the exact right uh, formula. Yes, exactly. The first case that we're going to bring up is uh, came out a couple months ago out of New Mexico uh, in the case against uh, McCluskey. And uh, first, there was a, a court decision called the McCluskey Report, and then more recently... What was the more recent thing, Glenn? Well, the the decision that I saw was... I mean, there was really two aspects. The The judge was allowing the uh, the fingerprint evidence, uh, but there was some concern... Well, I mean, he, he essentially was allowing the fingerprint evidence uh, to come in, but he was excluding, uh, essentially, the the inconclusive decision. that, um, But not because of the reliability of the, of the evidence. It passed, in his view, the reliability test, but it didn't pass the relevance test. That an inconclusive was essentially irrelevant um, to uh, the issues that the, the you know, the the prosecutor is putting forward. Yeah, and the other interesting thing I, I saw in there was that the judge was not going to allow the fingerprint examiner from New Mexico to testify to 100% certainty or um, uh, zero error rate, uh, all, the, all those things that have been, you know, uh, through the field for the past few years. Right. The uh, more recent thing, uh, the judge denied a motion to, to you know, keep out the fingerprint evidence, and the defense in this the more recent one was stating that because uh, the the fingerprints hit in APHIS, and APHIS as a system has a, quote, 50% error rate, that it shouldn't be allowed in. Oh, uh, I know what you're, yes, I, I, now I know which, which case you're referring to, right, right. Uh, and I never heard a defense, you know, make that specific claim before. It seemed kind of a, a new tactic. Uh, uh, is that, uh, have you heard something like this before? No, I haven't. I almost had to wonder if it wasn't some weird um, confusion <laughs> on someone's part. Because, you know, we've heard in some of the error rate studies that have been done that, you know, depending, for example, on which critic is you know, citing the error rates, for example, we, you know, I have this personal experience that, you know, Ralph Haber, uh, because he will include in his error rate calculations uh, no value and inconclusive decisions as essentially failed to identify when they are coming from the same source. So they essentially count it in as errors. You know, I've, I've witnessed him in a court of law testify, you know, that in this particular study, you know, the, the error rate was 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%. So I, I almost wondered if it wasn't a confusion on that as opposed to something with APHIS. I don't see, I, I can't think of a single paper or instance where somebody has said APHIS makes mistakes 50% of the time. And 
the only thing I could think of was that you know an APHIS system isn't a perfect thing that's not going to find it every time, and maybe there's there was uh, someone even in just New Mexico who had stated that hmm. their system typically finds people uh, about fifty percent of the time uh, when the, uh, a fingerprint is entered in for search. Right. In, uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, another possibility is they could have been referring to the paper that uh, Casey Wartime and uh, Etail Drawer wrote about APHIS bias. Uh, I think that came out last year. So, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know where that number is being pulled from. It, it sounds, um, I mean, it sounds obviously pretty outrageous. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing with, with that, you know, including those inconclusive things like, like Ralph Haber uh, does, you know, when is uh, touching an item, since there's no guarantee that a latent print uh, at all or even an identifiable latent print is left, I don't see how that those can be counted in as errors you know, when, when that's not a guarantee that it's even left in the first place. Right, and in fact, I'm thinking in this particular uh, hearing where I did you know, have to testify with, with Ralph Haber, uh, I showed an image of a fingerprint which was just a pure smudge. I mean, there was no ridge detail whatsoever, but the ground truth was I was the source of that latent print. But yet, if that had been given to a latent print examiner in a test, they would, the, that would have been counted against them as, as an error if they had reported inconclusive or no value uh, because essentially they failed to identify when the, the ground truth was known that I was the source of that. It, it, it's... Well, at best, it's misleading, and at worst, I mean, it's it's really it's it, it seems out of bounds, I, and I, I can't see how someone rational would look at that and go, well, that's clearly an error because you didn't identify it when we had the ground truth. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. No. Uh, well, so the the Arizona link to that uh, McCluskey case is uh, just to kind of work backwards now hmm. is uh, McCluskey and. Uh, I think his wife slash cousin and another inmate uh, escaped from a prison in Arizona and disappeared for a while before they were uh, finally caught uh, a few weeks later. But in the meantime, they had killed an Oklahoma couple in New Mexico. Now, you had uh, another um, recent uh, news story that that, uh, that caught your attention. Is that right? Yeah, well, I was, it's actually another paper that kind of got me a little bit fired up. I was uh, looking at the Huffington Post, and they, and the, the, essentially the title of it was that uh, crime labs are being paid for uh, erroneous convictions. And, you know, of course, this catches my eye, and I, and I explore a little bit further. I was referring to a paper that came out not too long ago uh, by Roger Koppel, and uh, Megan Sachs. And uh, had you had a chance to read this paper? Do you know this paper? No, I'm not aware of this. Okay. Well, this uh, Roger Koppel is a professor of finance in the Whitman School of Management in Syracuse, New York. And Megan Sachs is an assistant professor of criminology in the Department of Social Science at Fairleigh Dickinson University. And um, well, Fair, fairly Dickinson. Fairly Dickinson. Not not fully Dickinson, but just fairly Dickinson. Fairly Dickinson. Yes. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yes, par- partially Dickinson. Partially Dickinson. Right. Um, and anyway, this this article 
nothing in post is is seizing on and then, and they're really making it very sensational uh the author in the huffington post goes on to say well it's it's obvious why so many crime labs are um, you know rife with scandals when essentially you're paying your scientists uh to convict people um and that, that's sort of the the point of this article so the title of the article is the criminal just Sorry, the criminal justice system creates incentives for false convictions. So that's our starting point right there, that the criminal wow. justice system is set up right now uh, with incentives for false convictions. And let me just read you the, the opening line of the paper. Police, prosecutors, and forensic scientists often have an incentive to convict someone with little or no incentive to convict the right someone. That's your opening sentence. So, yeah, right. Um, and, and I just have to, you know, and I, I've met Roger Coppola. He's a very nice man. He's very bright, very smart. But when I read this, I go, clearly, these people do not have any friends or family who are police prosecutors or forensic scientists. Because the notion that we will, we just want to convict someone. We don't care if it's the right someone. I mean, it's, it's so offensive. I mean, to start off this paper with such an offensive uh, statement. I, I mean, it just turns you off for the rest of it. It makes it very hard to digest some of the good points that are in there, and they do, you know, they do point to some things that are, are fairly interesting and possibly, um, you know, could explain some bias issues that we are aware of and you know and have seen in some of the research. But I mean, they talk about the incentives of police. They talk about the incentives of prosecutors. But I'll I'll jump to the the incentives of forensic scientists, which you know, of course, is directly I'm interested in. Right, exactly, because you know, <laughs> I want to see what I'm being accused of. Right, exactly. <laughs> and um, so th what they they essentially talk about is that a lot of states have um, they're basically court fees that. If there's a conviction, if someone's convicted, you know, they often have to serve time, and then there are some fees they have to pay, you know, the court fees. And wrapped up in those court fees are, um, are money, monies that go to the crime lab. Essentially, you know, in some of the, especially like drunk driving, that's a real good one, you know, breath alcohol, blood alcohol, where um, part of the court fees are also going right back to the crime lab at, at some point. I don't, the, the paper's not real clear, the, you know, tracking the money, but they, they show that in certain states, a large number of states, the court fees often have an element that goes to reimbursing the crime lab. So were, were you aware of that? I, I, I am aware that, I mean, at least in my experience here in Arizona, that uh, some of the monies from you know drunk driving, and Arizona has extremely tough uh, DUI laws, uh, do are supposed to go be set aside for the crime lab. Now, from talking to people that have been around uh, the state crime lab for a number of years, they said that those funds are swept into the kind of general fund for the state yes. every year and have been for, you know, basically forever. Uh, but Well, in fact, in, in Arizona is mentioned here in the paper, it says oh, that... Okay. The following states also require crime lab fees in connection with various conviction types in Arizona, California, Missouri, Tennessee, Wisconsin, so on. So I mean, it does even mention that here. But the, what the paper essentially, I mean, I won't even say that it, I won't suggest it implies it, it comes right out and says it. it. It basically says that for every conviction that you get, 
you know, you, Eric Ray, for every conviction you get, you're bringing the crime lab money. So you're, you have an incentive to identify people and get convictions for the prosecution because you are helping the crime lab make money. That's the element of the paper. That's the thesis of the paper. I mean, isn't wow. that... It, it's, it's insanity to me to think that someone is going to call something identification and, and with the notion that I need to call this so that I will continue to have a job, so the crime because the crime lab will get money from this. I mean, I mean it, it, it would be so easy if that was going on uh, routinely, making identifications to convict people in order to get the funds. Uh, that means they're they're implying you know these would be erroneous identifications. Uh, it would be so easy to to find them then. And while there are some erroneous identifications out there, uh, they're they're not. You know, there are not that many of them. Virtually every erroneous identification I can think of uh, has been uh, demonstrated by another latent print examiner. So, I mean, there's obviously latent print examiners out there willing to, you know, recognize mistakes when they happen and point them out, you know, when they happen uh, to, you know, kind of keep uh, our discipline as accurate as possible. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah there's, I mean, there's no doubt that, like, like you just said, I mean, it's the fingerprint examiners that have been finding them. But, I mean, the, it just... What, what I think what strikes me about the paper is while it brings up a, a nice miasma of theories and ideas of how these things are sort of related, and, of course, it cites a lot of research, you know, uh, Drawer and Charlton studies about bias, yeah, and yeah. things that we're not disputing. We're not disputing that bias doesn't exist and that these things can't influence uh, forensic scientists. But the notion that we're all aware of that, and that's my first thing is, I mean, how many forensic scientists are actually a, acutely aware that, that there is some amount of money coming to the lab per conviction? Because, I mean, Eric, how many, I mean, how many times have you made identifications and actually found out whatever happened to your case? I mean, in most of the cases I work, I have no idea if the person ever is convicted, if there's a plea. I have no idea. I don't even know if half the time if I'm identifying a true victim or a suspect in the case. I mean, exactly. I, we don't know what often happens on the other end. And again, I, I haven't been doing this as long as you have, Glenn, or as, as many of our listeners. I've been in the field six years now, uh, and I think I have one case uh, that I can think of where I, I know what the end verdict in the case was. Wow, one. And one. I mean, I've only gone to testify five times now. Uh, it, just the huge, vast majority of the time when I write my report, it just it just kind of goes off into somewhere. Did you ever watch Lost? Glenn, uh, yeah, yeah. That show? I, I did. Uh, I, I finally got into it. Although, I have to tell you, I waited until the entire show was over <laughs> and then marathoned the whole thing, which I hear is the way to watch that show. Uh, you know, I, I got into it a few years late and then watched everything except for the last season. I, I just somehow lost interest right before the end. But my, <laughs> my point is, is that at some point in that show, there's a, someone who who's supposed to be sending reports into those old uh, vacuum tubes that suck away the the oh, yes. uh, the tube, and then later on in the show that it shows that all these capsules have been just spitting out into a giant pile that no one ever looks at. And sometimes when I write my reports, it feels like they're just going away and it's just being filed or, or dumped into some corner where no one ever reads them. 
Uh, right, we, and, we just send reports off into the nether realm and and where they go or what effect they have. We, I mean, that, that's a great way to describe it. We really have no idea. And that's fine. I, I actually have no problem with that. You know, I, I enjoy comparing prints. I, you know, finding who left this print uh, is, is interesting and challenging and, and fun for me. But problem to solve is who left it, not how I can ensure that I get a paycheck because that results I, in a conviction. never find out. Yeah, right. Well, and, and I think that's going to be my second point with this paper is that there's no, there's no evidence here of causality. That, you know, they're raising that – I'm not disputing that crime labs don't get some money out of these court fees or, you know, even in some states where there's federal funding – you know, if if the you know for for the crime lab to you know uh, calibrate intoxilizers, you know, breathalyzers or whatever instruments being used, you know, I mean, I, I know that there are federal funds that get tied into crime labs and and that sort of stuff. So I don't dispute that fact at all in the paper. But to me, there is no causal link showing that forensic scientists or even police officers or prosecutors, for that matter, are in some way considering this monetary aspect and that's directly leading to incorrect you know convictions so i mean it just and, i read the paper and it just it, it gets me all fired up because i this this just plays into the hands of you know, almost conspiracy theorists that you know the crime labs are, are rife with these scientists who are biased and this is yet one more bias that's playing into it is our you know cha-ching factor well, let me ask you, and I can say that it's never happened for me, but have, have you ever been approached by anyone at your lab saying that, you know, in the past few months, the number of IDs that you've made has been lower than, than, than your coworkers? No, I mean, I'm laughing just hearing, hearing that thought. <laughs> I would imagine that no one in our lab has any idea how many identifications anyone is making in our, in our lab. I mean, we actually have started keeping track data, but nobody's actually, no one knows those numbers. They're not, you know, written, you know, on some board somewhere. I mean, I know there are some labs that, that keep track uh, in general of the number of cases that you put through. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the number of identifications, and then even past that, the number of identifications that lead to conviction, I, I would have no way of, I can't even imagine how, how our agency would begin to track that. Right. So one of the things that we, you and I have talked about offline a little bit is to, um, we have a, a suggestion from a listener to create a landing pad is it, or landing page. Is that, is that correct? A landing page? That sounds about right. I, I, I'm, I'm going to begin work here soon on a double loop podcast webpage where we could uh, have, you know, each episode uh, available for, um, you know, listeners to to pull up, and with also information uh, about each episode, maybe the links to these articles that we've been talking about. Right. That's, uh, that that that's may exactly be a few weeks I'm... down the road because uh, there's some you know some work into getting something like that up and running. But uh, uh, definitely, I'm going to see what I can do about that. Yeah, that's exactly why I was bringing it up. Was just um, like so. Some of these articles we're referring to, we can try to make them available, but people can always email us for a- any of these. Um, and I can give the email now. It's uh, Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at EliteForensicServices.com. Email me, and I'm happy to share this with you, and so you can see some of these articles and cases we're talking about. 
So that's uh, that's news I have. Any any other news bits on your end, Eric? I think that uh, kind of covers it for uh, for this week. Right. Hi, this podcast is brought to you by Elite Forensic Services. Elite Forensic Services provides quality forensic services by distinguished forensic professionals. We provide expert consultation for prosecution or defense, criminal or civil, on forensic cases and specialize in fingerprints, DNA interpretation, bloodstain pattern, and other types of forensic evidence. We can also provide customizable training and SOP development for your agency. Check out EliteForensicServices.com for upcoming training courses and workshops. Thanks, and back to the show. So that's going to bring us to the next part of the show, which uh, you and I discussed, what should we do with show number three? And since we're just getting to, to know uh, the the listeners a little bit and just sort of uh, getting to uh, put, put our voices out there, we should title this show, Who the Hell Are Glenn and Eric? And so we decided we'd take a little bit of time to almost interview each other and, and try to explain to the listeners who we are and why would we want to do a podcast? Well, first of all, I, uh, I think everybody would know who, who you are, Glenn. I, I, I would disagree. I may be a little more of, a, of an enigma in this in this podcast, but surely everybody knows Glenn Langenberg. Ah, uh, not surely. Surely you must be joking. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it's sad to, to say that uh, we may have some, some new latent print examiners who've never actually seen Airplane and may not get that reference. Right. Well, I am uh, I'm pouring a glass of wine right now because it's a nice Friday evening, late at night. And I'm going to relax, and I'm going to ask you some questions, Eric. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Glenn. Shoot. All right. First of all, um, so how many times have you been confused with Napoleon Dynamite? <laughs> uh, boy, the first question. That's, uh, that's great. Uh, actually, I, I think I might get Dirk Nowitzki more often than Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> But, uh, um, gosh, Glenn, gosh. Uh, <laughs> All right. um, since that movie came out, I, I have been a few times. Um, I, I did a Parks and Recreation volleyball season um, with some co-workers a few years ago, and, and there was one team Nothing that, related to the show, that, Parks and Recreation, with, with Leslie <laughs> Nope and Ann Perkins. No, okay, okay. Just, no, no, um, but there's one team that, that uh, there's a, there's a guy there that that uh, every time oh we get to play the Napoleon Dynamite team. <laughs> Even better though, probably four or five years ago, went through Ron Smith's palm print class. Is was advanced palm print techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the last classes that Ron himself actually taught, and he called me Napoleon Dynamite that entire uh, <laughs> class period. I'm and, impressed. And, Ron knows that movie. <laughs> evidently, and and with his you know. Mississippi accent. Uh, that was that was some some experience there. Huh, that's that's great. All right, so you are um, you're what six foot ten, seven foot five. Uh, I like I actually like to call it uh, five foot seventeen, uh, <laughs> and it gets people to kind of pause for a second, do some math, and uh, I stand out in a crowd. You know, like I said, six five with a mop of blonde hair. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm fairly easy to spot. All right, so you said earlier you've been doing this, what, five five years now? Uh, six years six now. Years, six years, okay, six years. Um, I remember when I first met you, you were actually taking one of my classes. I was teaching a class there in Mesa, Arizona, and uh, you, you did 
very well in the class. I, I believe you did like top in the class or close to top think, in the think, class. Yeah, I think I was. I, I came in a close second in that class. That was the the first uh, you know external training I took. Uh, was when I you know I met you at that class. Mm. Um, that was almost six years ago now. Yeah, and you work for uh, Arizona Department of Public Safety, correct? I'm in their central regional crime lab. I had a couple of years out in Lake Havasu City at their western regional crime lab before coming back to uh, to the Phoenix area. Okay, and and how did you uh, get into fingerprints? How did you get hired uh, at that lab? And did you always want to be a fingerprint examiner when you were a wee little <laughs> Eric Ray? <laughs> was it? Oh, geez, was I ever a wee little Eric Ray? Um, it's been a long time, I guess, but. Um, no, I, it's kind of funny. I always, even I remember in uh, high school and college, just in a, a random class, whatever I was taking, uh, would just to kind of you know distract myself from whatever the professor was talking about, uh, touch the little uh, clip on my pen, I, and I'd, I've got double loop whorls on my thumbs, uh, and I I'd try to just kind of line up that the double loop whorl with the the pen, and then kind of look at it in the light never thinking that someday I'd actually be comparing those kinds of fingerprints every day. Uh, but um, I went to the University of Arizona, studied biochemistry and biology, uh, you know, eventually um, applied for uh, the crime lab at DPS. Um, I was, um, you know, got interested in that. I thought it was something I'd be good at uh, after bouncing around with a few other jobs. And uh, when they said that you know the spot you know that's available is uh, for in the latent print unit, I said sure, I'll take it. <laughs> I had no idea what <laughs> what that entailed. I remember my, my first day on the job, my trainer you know was going over some basic terms, but you know loop, whorl, arch, and I'm I'm furiously writing these things down because I'd never heard these terms before. I don't know, this, things have kind of turned out okay. I really enjoy my job and, and am glad that I kind of lucked into Leighton Prince as the, the unit that I first got assigned to. Sure. Did, uh, did they have any kind of test or, you know, um, like a here's some fingerprints, see how you do, you know, for the job? Or was it more of just a basic civil service kind of job, uh, you know, interview test? The Atlanta, Arizona the hiring process is it starts off with just a general written test on forensics. They don't make you uh, stand outside in the heat for ten minutes and see if if you pass out. <laughs> it, uh, if you live here, you you you're kind of used to that already. Um, I would imagine that's a good way to screen people from out of state. <laughs> uh, just fly them in during the summer and and uh, and see if if you know they run screaming back to the airport. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, if, if they come here in you know January or February, they may want to stay forever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's just it was just a general written test, a general uh, set of questions about you know as a uh, an oral board, and then the, you, know, you got ranked on a list as to how well you did, and they went down the list and and uh, asked if you'd like a job in this unit or that unit at the central lab or a regional lab. I, you know, I I, I th honestly think that that uh, I got hired because I was willing to do Leighton Prince out in Lake Havasu City, and <laughs> funny that, how that is. <laughs> that, that was that was good enough at the time, and uh, 
you know, I, I'm again, I'm just kind of glad that the, the whatever series of, of fortunate events that led me to that point, you know, got me there so I could end up where I'm at. All right. So you've been you've been doing this for six years now. You are certified, yes. Yes. Yes, of course. And um, you also have published a paper, uh, at least one that I know of. Have you any others? And you want to talk about um, the paper that you published? Yeah. No, the the uh, paper I was really excited um, to that 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 uh, got accepted by the JFI came out uh, almost a year ago in the November 2012 edition uh, of the JFI. Um, you know, it was really. Uh, hearing people like you, Glenn, uh, and Alice Maceo uh, talk about, you know, getting involved in the discipline, getting out there, doing some sort of research, finding a, an interesting question that you can grab onto, that uh, that really encouraged me, you know, pretty early in my career to to, to uh, you know talk to the higher ups in my agency and say, hey, I want to do this, and and then move forward with it. No, okay, that, that's the, cool. Uh, and, and we got to get Alice on the show. That, that's, exactly. That, that's a must. we got to get Alice. Uh, so the topic was on uh, the, the uh, palm print frequencies, or sorry, the, the frequencies of different patterns in palm prints. And it, it took a while to, to go to sift through lots of data, learned a lot about uh, Excel spreadsheets, and you know found some, some interesting, uh, surprising things I didn't know about where different patterns show up in the palms. Right. And and if I recall, essentially a lot of the things that you might get in Ron Smith's palm print class, which is now what, um demystifying uh, it's 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 or is it just palm print? Palm I think it's advanced palm print comparison techniques or something like that. Something like that. And it's taught by, by Jamie Bush with right. Ron Smith and Associates. And um so a lot of the thing the clues for searching in there you explored those and looked at the frequencies of those in palm prints, correct? Correct. Um, and and, and you looked at, what, a set of 400? Uh, about 500. 500, okay, 500. Yeah. So that's a, it's a pretty uh, meaty set. That's a pretty big set. Yeah, you know, it was things like uh, how you and you, the vestiges that you get, uh, they're more common in the left hand. And I think that was fairly common knowledge in the discipline. What, um, what was more interesting was that you almost never get them in the right hand by themselves. It's either in both hands together uh, on an individual or just in the left hand. Yeah, I remember when you presented that in a, in, in when you were showing the data, and that I, I did not know that. That was really kind of cool. So it's sort of if it's present on the left hand, there's some probability increase that will be on the right hand. But if it's not on the right hand... No, I got it backwards. Oh, you got it backwards. You got it backwards, <laughs> right? But if, clearly, if it's one... in the left hand, if it's in the the right hand, it's almost always going to be in the left hand. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. The other the other big one was the uh, the loop in the interdigital area um, on the left hand. It's almost always between the uh, the ring and little fingers. Uh, in the in the right hand, it's kind of evenly split either between the the ring and little. Uh, or about half the time between the uh, the middle and ring. Uh, so, so just, of course, I'm looking at my palms right there. now. I, I had to look this up, and that's, that's exactly how my palms are. Yeah, I imagine there are many listeners now who are looking at their palms and seeing if that fits for them. I uh, have a, another paper coming out in uh, this year's November issue of the JFI uh, that I, I co-wrote with my uh, co-worker and technical lead at, at uh, Arizona DPS, Penny Deccant. Uh, and it's going to be on 
um, standards and sufficiency for the exclusion decision. No, oh, so we're, fantastic. we're really anxious to to see that come out and see what kind of feedback we get from that. Okay, well that's very cool. Well, that's really cool, Eric. So thanks for sharing that uh, with us. And I'm sure as we do more and more of these, we'll get a chance to share personal stories and get to know you a little bit. And maybe in the next episode, I'll uh, talk about myself a little bit. And oh yeah, I've got to get uh, get you on the. Uh, in the interview chair for the next episode. All right, let me finish my wine, and then I'll be all ready to spill the beans. <laughs> all right, so uh, we're going to leave it here, and do you want to sign off? Uh, thank you for joining us this week on the Double Loop Podcast. You can find us every Tuesday on SoundCloud.com, and very soon we will be available through Stitcher and through iTunes. So that is uh, that is exciting. We'll be available to an even bigger audience than uh, the throngs that are listening right now. All right. Uh, so, uh, good night, everybody, and we'll see you next week. All right. Bye. Hey, everybody. Be sure to check out EliteForensicServices.com for upcoming training courses. We have great workshops and courses such as advanced ACB applications and reducing erroneous exclusions. Go to www.EliteForensicServices.com today. Music provided on this podcast by Medio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.medio.com. Thank you.